Kundagiri Govardhan ki jai, Vrindavan Dhamma ki jai, Mathura Dhamma ki jai, Navadvip Mayapur Dhamma ki jai, Jagannath Puri Dhamma ki jai, Ganga Mai Devi ki jai, Bhakti Devi ki jai, Tosti Maharani ki jai, Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda ki jai, Gaur Premananda. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada, Ma Om Vishnu Krishna Prasthaya Bhutta, Sri Mate Bhakti Vedanta Swami Nityananda Namaste Saraswati Devi Goranga Prachana Namaste Sanyamani Paschajadi Satan. Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Utapada Kamalam Sri Guru Vaishnavam Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Deva Sri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lavita Sri Vishakam Vitamsha Panchakapati Vishaki Vishnavi Pavanavya Vaishnavi Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya It's September 3rd, 2016 in Radha Belgium, and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 7, Chapter 10, Prahlad, the Best Among Exalted Devotees, Text 13. Bhogena Punyam Kushalena Papam Bhogena Punyam Kushalena Papam Kale Varam Kala Javena Hitva Kritim Vishudam Suraloka Gitam Kritim Vishudam Suraloka Gitam Vitayamam Eshasi Mukta Banda Bogena By feelings of material happiness Punyam Pious activities or their results Kushalena, by acting piously, devotional service is the best of all pious activities. Papam, all kinds of reactions to impious activities. Kalevaram, the material body. Kala Javena, by the most powerful time factor. Hitva, giving up. Kirtim, reputation. Vishudam, transcendental or fully purified. Suraloka Gitam, praised even in the heavenly planets. Vidaya, spreading all through the universe. Mam, unto me. Eshasi, you will come back. Mukta Banda, being liberated from all bondage. So this is Nasingadev speaking to Prahlad. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. My dear Prahlad, while you are in this material world, you will exhaust all the reactions of pious activity by feeling happiness, and by acting piously, you will neutralize impious activity. Because of the powerful time factor, you will give up your body, but the glories of your activities will be sung in the upper planetary systems, and being fully freed from all bondage, you will return home back to Godhead. Purport. Shilushana Chakravati Thakur says, Evam Pralada Syamasena Sarana Siddhatvam Nitya Siddhatvam Chadnarada Divrajvenam. There are two kinds of devotees, the Sarana Siddha, and the Nichasiddha, of course, there's actually another kind, which is the There are two classes of devotees, the Sadhana Siddha and the Nichasiddha. But of course there's another. What's the other? Uh, sorry, Siddhas. Yes. Kripa Siddha, yes. Prahlad Maharaj is a mixed Siddha. That is, he is perfect partly because of executing devotional service and partly because of eternal perfection. 
Thus he is compared to such devotees as Narada. Formerly Narada Muni was the son of a maidservant, and therefore in his next birth he attained perfection, Sadhana Siddhi, because of his having executed devotional service. Yet he is also a Nitya Siddha because he never forgets the Supreme Personality of Godhead. The word Kushalena is very important. One should live in the material world very expertly. Kushalena means by acting piously. The material world is known as the world of duality because one sometimes has to act impiously and sometimes has to act piously. Although one does not want to act impiously, the world is so fashioned that there is always danger. Padam, padam, yadvi, padam. Thus, even when performing devotional service, a devotee has to create many enemies. Prahlad Maharaj himself had experience of this, for even his father became his enemy. A devotee should expertly manage to think always of the Supreme Lord so that the reactions of suffering cannot touch him. So how does a devotee get free from suffering? Hmm? By thinking of Krishna. When? Always. This is the expert management of papa punya, pious and impious activities. What's the expert management? To always think of Krishna. An exalted <coughs> devotee like Prahlad Maharaj is Jeevan Mukta. He is liberated even in this very life in the material body. Bogena punyam kushalena papam kalevaram kala javena hitva kritim vishudam suraloka gitam vitayamam eshisamukta My dear Prahlad, while you are in this material world, you will exhaust all the reactions of pious activity by feeling happiness. And by acting piously, you will neutralize impious activity. Because of the powerful time factor, you will give up your body, but the glories of your activities will be sung in the upper planetary systems, and being fully freed from all bondage, you will return home back to Godhead. So in order to be liberated, we have to be liberated from the reactions of our previous activities, previous and present activities, right? Isn't that what it means? I mean, if you're in prison and you get free from prison, that means the reactions to your crime, you don't have to suffer them anymore. So how can you get free from the reactions to a crime? Good behavior so that the prison officials release you early. That can happen. Yes? By repenting. By repenting, again, so the... So the prison officials may release you early. And the normal way is you wait till the end of your sentence. You wait until your sentence is over. So those are basically the two bona fide ways. I mean, you can try to escape from the prison. However, if you get caught, then you have to suffer what you would have suffered anyway, plus you have to suffer for trying to escape from the prison. So you're basically, your two ways are to just simply serve your sentence, wait until the time is over, and then get out. Uh, or you convince the prison officials that you rectified yourself, and they left you out. They let you out early. Now, even within the prison, if you convince, if you convince uh, the prison officials that you've changed, you may be given a lot of freedom inside the prison. Yes? They may not, and if you behave badly inside the prison, then you will be punished more even inside the prison. They'll put you in solitary confinement and, and so forth and so on. You know, and if you commit further crimes when you're in the prison, if you kill one of the other prisoners or rape one of the other prisoners, then you will get an additional sentence. So our situation is that we're trying not to do any more uh, pious or sinful activities. We'll be discussing this a little bit uh, in Manashiksha with the second verse where Raghavadas Goswami says, Nadharmam, Nadharmam, don't do pious or sinful activities. So we're trying as a devotee not to do any karmic activities at all, not to do any pious activities and not to do any sinful activities. Although Srila Prabhupada makes the point that even when you're a devotee, uh, he says, You may do what? What happened to Prahlad Maharaj? that Prabhupada mentions here in the book. 
he, may, he created enemies. Because it says in the Bhagavad Gita, and also Krishna tells Uddhava in the 11th canto, that you shouldn't cause any pain to any other living entity. You shouldn't be disturbed by others trying to cause you pain, and nor should you give anyone else pain. You shouldn't be a source of difficulty for anyone. But even if you are doing your best not to be a source of difficulty for anyone, other people may perceive that you are being a source of difficulty for them. Have you all had this experience? <laughs> You're basically just minding your own business and going about your own life and not trying to bother anybody, and somebody is bothered by you. So I hear Hirani Kashipu was bothered, uh, rather extremely in fact, by the fact that Prahlad was a devotee. Of course, not just by the fact that Prahlad was a devotee, because Prahlad was preaching about devotional service to him. Of course, he asked for that. He said, what's the best thing you've learned from your teachers? And uh, Prahlad, being only five years old, very innocently, and not thinking diplomatically, he was thinking that his teachers included Narada Muni. What have you learned from your teachers? Well, he didn't just count Sanda and Amarka as his teachers. He also counted Narada as his teacher, and therefore he picked the best thing he'd learned from his best teacher, and, and as a young child, very innocently answered his father's question. So you can say his father asked for it. Uh, Prahlad didn't volunteer the information. Uh, but Hiranyakashipu was so furious at that that he became one of the first child abusers in the universe uh, and trying to kill his son. Of course, later, Hiranyakashipu got even more angry when Prahlad started preaching actively. He was proactively preaching. The children didn't ask him, but he was actively preaching to the other children. Of course, Prahlad Maharaj only did that after uh, his, he was not killed by his father. So until his father tried to kill him, he just kept his Krishna consciousness to himself, except when his father asked him. But after his father tried to kill him and was unsuccessful, Prahlad got very emboldened. Uh, and, and he started uh, preaching to the other uh, children. And there's a lot of research that shows that when people survive some great catastrophe, uh, sometimes they become traumatized, but other times they become emboldened. That, well, if I survive this, then I can survive anything. And then they become very courageous. So the point is that Prahlad Maharaj made an enemy. He created an enemy in his father, and presumably in Sanda and Amarka and other persons, uh, just by being a devotee. And creating an enemy is generally understood to be in the realm of karma, of bad karma, because usually when you create an enemy, uh, then you come back to deal with that enemy again until things are settled. When we, when we create friends and enemies, we create karmic debts. You understand? We create karmic debts that have to be repaid. Uh, but what can you do in this world? Prabhupada is saying, padam, padam, yagvi, padam. That even if you try not to do anything pious or sinful, you'll end up doing things that are pious and sinful. It's very difficult not to. So to be untouched by the reactions of suffering and to attain the Lord's abode, I think is our desire, yes? Do we all have that desire? First of all, it's very normal want to be uh, to want to be untouched by suffering. I mean, we're a soul, anandamaya biasat. We're naturally pleasure seeking, so to have the desire to be free from suffering is very much a, something that the soul would feel, and to be back with the Lord is also something that the soul would naturally uh, desire to be with the Lord. Of course, the very great souls, the liberated devotees don't have any of these, don't have either of these desires, uh, but the reason they don't have either of these desires is that the fulfillment of them is already there, if that makes any sense. So the reason that the pure devotees don't desire to be free from suffering is that they are free from suffering. And the reason they don't desire to be in the Lord's abode is because they always feel like they're in the Lord's abode. It doesn't matter where they are in a geographical sense. So wherever they're, they're located in terms of geography, they feel that they're, they're in the spiritual world with the Lord. And whatever is happening in their external conditions, they do not experience it as suffering. They basically don't have any suffering. Therefore, they never ask for these benedictions because they already have them. So it's not that they don't ask for them because they're just perfectly happy to be miserable and separate from the Lord. Uh, that's, not, that's not the situation. So how do we attain to these things? So the main way that we attain to these things 
is to take to bhakti yoga. And uh, bhakti yoga here is defined very succinctly, as it often is, to always think of the Lord. Now, I must say that uh, we don't commonly, in our Hare Krishna movement, although this is our philosophy, that bhakti yoga means to always think of the Lord, I believe that we generally define bhakti yoga as a, a set of external activities. Uh, we tend to define bhakti yoga much more as if we were a religion. You know, what makes a religion? It's basically a certain set of beliefs and a certain set of rituals that uh, you hope will achieve those beliefs, you hope will make those beliefs real for you. And I think we often define bhakti yoga exactly like that. You know, do you believe this? Do you believe that? And, and we have a lot of um, belief wars that go on in our movement. You know, are you believing the right thing? And are you believing the right thing? And, and we fight about what exactly is the right thing to believe. And often on very uh, minute, minutia uh, kind of thing. And then we also have a lot of fights about exactly what we should do. Yes? Mm-hmm. You know, we have fights about whether we should offer Artik starting with Prabhupada and going up to Krishna or starting with Krishna and going down to Prabhupada and you know, exactly what kind of clothes we should wear and exactly what kind of food we should offer and, and so forth and so on. And exactly how we should chant our japa. And so we, we, we tend to fixate on those sort of things as if those were the most important things in bhakti yoga. But the most important thing in bhakti yoga is to always think of Krishna. And the reason that we are interested in beliefs and practices is because they either help us always think of Krishna or they are their natural result of thinking of Krishna. So if I think of you, I will naturally do things for you that you like. And if I would like to think of you, then I will do things that you like. <laughs> and if I want to think of you, I will, be- I will have a set of beliefs uh, that are conducive to thinking of you. But the point is to always think of you. And of course, the point is not just to think of Krishna in some sort of, um, how would you say, detached, a purely intellectual way. In fact, to always think of something in a purely detached intellectual way is simply not possible. If you've ever tried to do that, the mind will jump very, very quickly to something that has emotional content for us. You know, so if, you, if you've ever tried to meditate on Krishna's name or Krishna's form just as some sort of intellectual exercise, uh, you'll find that you fail very quickly because the mind just jumps to something with emotional content. So to think of Krishna always must involve the emotions and the desires, which indeed Krishna says, maya shakta manaprata. And we have so many injunctions in the Shastra that even the demons, if they think of Krishna with fear or anger, become purified, because there's some emotional content. And I was just reading recently, and I don't remember where, how that the, the demons are more favorable when they think of Krishna with anger and fear than the demigods who are just in the mode of goodness, you know, just in this equilibrium and not so much experiencing emotions. Uh, because when we think of Krishna with some emotion, uh, then we will be, ta- be likely to always think of him. I mean, if you, if you consider what do we always think about, we think about the things that we have some fear about or some attachment, right? One of the rasas, some wonder, something humorous, that's what attracts our, our consciousness. <coughs> so why would always thinking of the Lord free us from being touched by suffering? Well, you know that if you even put the mind into sattva guna, you will be free from suffering. Did you all know that? So what is the mind, uh, which mode of nature does the mind come from? Mm-hmm. From sattva, from goodness. Yeah, the intelligence comes from passion, and the mind comes from goodness. And go- the, the primary quality of goodness, primary qualities of goodness, are equilibrium and balance. If you read about the qualities of goodness, yes? They have a lot to do with being equipoised. And also a quality of goodness is joy, isn't it? Isn't that one of the qualities of goodness? Am I correct? Yes? All, every, and also knowledge? Am I, am I right? Am I getting the qualities right? All of you great scholars here in Radha Yes? Yes? 
qualities of goodness, all the gates of the body are illuminated by knowledge. One feels very happy. Hmm? Correct? Yes. And one is equipoised. So the mind is actually, naturally, in that state. That is the natural state of the mind. To be in a sense of balance and, and equilibrium and peace and joy. So really, all you have to do is get the mind to stop jumping. It's the jumping of the mind, which is influenced by an intelligence and passion, that brings us, frankly, all of our suffering. And you can say, well, if I cut my finger, what does that have to do with the mind? It actually has a lot to do with the mind. To what extent you feel that cut on your finger as suffering has a lot to do with the state of your mind. If you've ever cut your finger while you were really, really, really busy in the kitchen, then you found that you were focusing on what you were doing and it didn't hurt so much. Isn't that a fact? It's not just the thing in and of itself. We're thinking the reason I'm suffering is the thing. I'm suffering because, you know, my leg is broken. I'm suffering because somebody I love yelled at me. We're we're thinking that that's why we're suffering, but it's not why we're suffering. We're suffering because our our mind is not in the mode of goodness. And our mind is not in a peaceful, joyful condition. Having knowledge. What is that knowledge that the mind has in the mode of goodness? It's knowledge that I'm not this body, that I'm the observer, as Krishna explains in the 5th and the 13th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. That what's happening with this body isn't really happening to me. I mean, if I see somebody else with a cut finger, I don't feel pain. Why do I feel it for my cut finger? Because I'm thinking that I am this body rather than I am the observer of the body. So just putting the mind on one point, frankly, even putting the mind on one material point frees one from suffering. Prabhupada talks about this with the teachings of Lord Kapila. He says that Stalin was able to forego getting anesthesia for a surgical operation because he was able to situate his mind in a certain way. He said, how much more so if one is thinking of Krishna. So anyone who can still the mind, and this is becoming very popular in the modern world, unfortunately mostly propagated by Buddhists, that just make your mind still, and you'll be full of joy and peace and free from suffering. And and, and it's a fact. Immediately you become the observer, and you see, oh, I have to put a bandage on my finger, but you don't feel pain. You become untouched by the resultant suffering of your situation. Of course, with thinking of Krishna, you go beyond putting the mind in sattva That's really just a side perk. You follow what I'm saying? It's, it's an incidental occurrence. So what the, the Buddhists, and now there's a lot of even non-religion-based uh, meditation going on in the world, what they're working to achieve one achieves naturally just by fixing the mind on Krishna. It's, it's just a side benefit of having you know, knowledge to see, oh, I'm different from this body, I'm just the observer, to be filled with peace and to be filled with joy. And when one actually thinks of Krishna even using the mind, one then transcends the mind. One transcends the mind. And Krishna himself becomes attracted by the mind, as explained in the third canto in chapter 28. And he starts appearing in the consciousness. At which time one has nothing to do with any of the reactions of this world. Again, one is aware of them, but one does not experience them as suffering. Now, of course, the catch to this is one doesn't experience the material pleasures as pleasures either which is one of the main reasons why people are not very enthusiastic to do this. So we, we would like to be free from the suffering, but we still want to enjoy all the sense pleasure as if that were pleasure. And when you're situated as the observer, then you don't have either. Of course, you have then a higher pleasure, which includes spiritual sense pleasure, <laughs> and therefore material sense pleasure becomes basically meaningless. It's just like if you're eating a real meal, you wouldn't want to eat a meal in, vir- in virtual reality. Does that make sense? Right. 
you know, what, that's becoming very popular today is uh, phone prostitution. You, you call a prostitute on the phone. You don't actually see her. And you imagine you're having a relationship with her. So if you actually had somebody that you loved, why would you do that? You know, it would be, so it's like that. If you really have Krishna there, why would you have some just virtual observer experience of sense pleasure? So this is why thinking of Krishna brings us above suffering. It takes us to a higher platform of pleasure, and it puts the mind in sattvagun, which we then transcend. And then we experience this material world as it is, which is that we are simply the observer. We are not the actor. We are not the doer. Ahankar avimudhatma kartaham iti maniyate. So to do this, one has to actually, really, deeply meditate on Krishna, not just go through some uh, ritualistic activities externally. And there's a, a very heavy lecture where Srila Prabhupada says, if you're chanting Hare Krishna but thinking of material things, then it is all useless. Then he has a long pause and he says, or it will take a long time. Oh, I see. Okay. Fix it. Okay. Okay. There's one over there too, right? Yeah, but there's the, the main one is there, which So this is our, our main practice, is to always be thinking about Krishna in, in a very deep way. And everything we're doing is meant for that. You know, our, our japa, our kirtan, our puja, our tilak, putting on, everything is meant to bring us to that point where we have full absorption in Krishna. And I also find it fascinating that Srila Prabhupada will, will feel many times that we can achieve that absorption very quickly in Krishna consciousness. He'll often say things like, immediately, or after a very short time. And there, there's many places like that in the Shastra where Krishna will say that after a very short time. I, I, again, I find this fascinating because people who are preaching impersonal meditation or Buddhist meditation or secular meditation will say you can achieve this after 50 or 100 hours of meditation. So if we, if we are really thinking of Krishna, if we're deeply thinking of Krishna, if, that's, if we're remembering that that is the goal of bhakti yoga, then although we appear to be in the world, we're not really in the world. Whereas Prabhupada talked to here about Prahlad Maharaj, we're jivan mukta. I know for a, a long time I considered many things in Krishna consciousness that they were somehow the province of somebody other than somebody like me. I, I remember I had a real uh, epiphany one time about forgiveness, that I had always considered that forgiveness was the province of people like Prahlad Maharaj, and that it was, since there was no question of my being ever like Prahlad Maharaj, there was no question of my being forgiving. <laughs> and I shouldn't even bother to try. That, you know, it's someday I was going to wake up and be like Prahlad Maharaj, and then all of a sudden I was going to find myself to be forgiving. And uh, then it was sort of a... a it's a long story of how it actually happened, but I decided maybe I should really try working on this. Maybe it is, it is something that I can actually achieve if I work on this. So the same way to always think about Krishna was something that Srila Prabhupada expected us to achieve very easily and very quickly. And he would say things, if you look at Prabhupada's lectures in 1966, 1967, you know, when Prabhupada was talking to people who were very, very new to the process of bhakti, and who had, practically speaking, practically speaking, no knowledge of the beliefs or philosophy of bhakti. Thomas Hopkins uh, tells a story. We were recently with him at, at Harvard. We had a wonderful convention there of uh, about half practicing ISKCON devotee scholars and about half scholars in the secular world about the 50th anniversary of ISKCON. It was a wonderful convention. And Thomas Hopkins told this really funny story that he had done his Ph.D. dissertation on the Srimad Bhagavatam in, I believe, 1962. And he said at that time there, was only, there were only two copies of the Bhagavatam in English translation in the whole of the United States. 
And he thought they were two different translations, but it turned out they were exactly the same translation. One was plagiarized. So there were only two copies of the Bhagavatam in English, the same translation. And uh, he was teaching in Pennsylvania. One of his students came to him and, and showed him a newspaper article about Srila Prabhupada in New York. So Thomas Hopkins got a travel grant from his university, which I also thought was humorous because just to travel from Pennsylvania to New York isn't exactly very expensive. Uh, so he got a travel grant from his university, and he went to New York to see if he could find out what was going on. So he went to the storefront that was mentioned in the article, and he sees a table on which there were, what did he see at the table? The Srimad Bhagavatam. Of course, those were Prabhupada's Bhagavatams that he had just brought from India. And there was one devotee there, and he asked this devotee, is, is this the Bhagavat Purana? In English translation? And the devotee says, well, I don't know, I think it's Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> You know, he just, he just didn't know anything. And, and so Dr. Hopkins, he's looking through it. He's like, wow, this is the Bhagavad Gita. It's, it's a different translation. It's a new English translation here in the United States. That's amazing. And he says to this devotee, so who did this translation? He says, oh, our Swamiji. He said, oh, where is he from? He says, oh, he's from India. And he said, uh, is he from Bengal? He said, no, 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 he's from India. <laughs> And he asked the devotee, well, what part of India? And the devotee said, oh, India has parts. <laughs> and then Dr. Dr. Hopkins decided he wasn't going to ask about Lord Chaitanya. He was, he was originally going to ask, you know, do you have anything to do with Chaitanya? But he decided that that wasn't going to be very prudent. So if you think about, you know, the level of knowledge devotees had in what we think are the most, you know, what, are, what do I believe? What do I know of the philosophy? And what do I do? So the devotees there really didn't have any basis in either of those things. They didn't understand practically any of the philosophy or beliefs of Krishna consciousness. And their ability to perform the activities that we associate with bhakti yoga was very small. Yes? You know, it was one year before Srila Prabhupada taught the Panchatattva mantra to the devotees. Right? Medusana tells the story that they were chanting, um, what is that? Henata um, Narayana Vasudeva. Uh, you hear some devotees chanting on CDs now. And, uh, they were singing that on Harinam. And Prabhupada heard them and said, what are you singing? And they said, oh Prabhupada, this is a mantra we found in one of your purports. And Prabhupada said, no, 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 don't sing this on Harinam. They said, well, he said, and Prabhupada asked them, would you like to have another mantra besides the Hare Krishna mantra? It was the only mantra that they had. And they said, yes, Srila Prabhupada. And then he taught them the Panchatattva mantra. But that was after they'd been devotees for a year. And still, if you, if you read Srila Prabhupada's lectures that he was giving at that time, he was telling people, why can't you just think of Krishna? It's very easy. Just always think of Krishna. And, and Prabhupada speaking, I mean, one of my favorite lectures is in India, in Sanan, India, where Prabhupada speaks on Bhagavad Gita 7.1, Maya Shakta Manaparta, and he's speaking to non-devotees. And you may say, well, it's in India, but any of you who've been to India know that Indian non-devotees are also non-devotees. <laughs> just, just because, you know, they have some name like Krishna Sharma uh, <laughs> doesn't mean that they're devotees. So Prabhupada was speaking to these, to these non-devotees, and he was telling them, just think of Krishna with attachment. Uh, just think of Krishna with attachment. So also, Lord Nisingadev is also advising uh, some practical measures of working in the world to free ourselves from karma, and this is what he's advising to Prahlad Maharaj. Now, these methods are certainly not required for a Nitya Siddha to do because a Nitya Siddha doesn't have any bad karma. Um, and for the only reason a Nitya Siddha would do these things would be as a service to Krishna to set an example. Because if Nitya Siddhas don't set a proper example, then the people in the world who are not yet perfect may think that the activities that are symptomatic of perfection are the same activities that will produce perfection. And that causes all kinds of trouble. Uh, such things cause trouble even in the uh, education world. Just like we put together a course to teach reading, and there's all different philosophies about how you should teach children how to read. So the main quarrel 
is between those who say you should teach children how to sound out the words by using the sounds of the letters and those who teach that you should just get children to memorize what the words look like. But there was a group some time ago, it's fallen completely out of favor, but there was a group some time ago that said, well, why don't we look at how expert readers read? And then we'll just teach children to read like that. So expert readers read several words at a time. We don't read one word at a time. We read phrases. And what happens when we read the phrase is we're also predicting what the next phrase is going to be. If our prediction is not correct, then we may have to slow down or back up and reread. But that's how accomplished readers read. So they tried to teach beginning readers to read like that, and it was an utter catastrophe. <laughs> it's like if you tried to teach beginning dancers to dance the way that someone who's been dancing for 12 years dances. It, it, it just wouldn't make sense, which is why Prabhupada says the Uttama Adhikari comes down to the Majjhima platform to preach. That when you're teaching a little child to read, you go, d, b, o, t, s. And you act like you're reading like that. You're not reading like that, of course. But you pretend that you're reading like that because otherwise you can't teach them. The same with mathematics. You know, if you're good at mathematics, you can look at a problem and you just know the answer. But if you're going to teach people mathematics, you have to verbalize your own mental steps. You understand? Which is it's difficult at first. It's difficult at first when you're a teacher. They go, well, what am I doing? How, how am I doing that? What, what is my process for doing that? And you have to figure out the, the beginning steps again. So the nichasiddhas, if they just go around acting like nichasiddhas, that the way that they're free from all karmic reactions and suffering is by absorption in Krishna, uh, and they don't really care about pious or sinful activities, it may cause a problem for the beginners. So therefore, they have to have as a service to set an example, and the sadhanasiddhas also have a service to set an example, but the sadhanasiddhas may have some uh, remaining reactions in the form of parabdha karma. Right? We have, even if you become a sadhana siddha, you're still walking around in a body that's the result of your past karma, correct? Yes? Okay. Uh, so therefore, Lord Nasingadev is advising, because Prahlad Maharaj is considered a mixed siddha devotee, which is an interesting discussion, he's saying that the way you should get free of your past good karma, most of us don't want to get free of our good karma, but if you don't get free of your good karma, you also have to take birth again to enjoy your good karma. So that's also a good thing to get rid of, just by the way. Please don't think that we only want to get rid of the results of our past bad karma. I don't think we just want to take birth in some rich, powerful family as a result of our good karma. So he said the way that you get, this is really interesting, he said the way you get rid of your good karma is to feel happy. So people talk about this as like appreciation and gratitude. Feel that. Hmm? I was recently reading someone, someone wrote, you know, when we're suffering, we say, oh, if I wasn't suffering anymore, I'd feel so happy. And as soon as we stop suffering, we forget to feel happy. Isn't it? As soon as this happens, then I'll be happy. And when that happens, we, we forget all about feeling happy. All we notice is the suffering. Isn't that weird? So one way we can get rid of our past good karma is that when nice things happen, when we don't have any physical or mental pain and everybody's being nice to us and the weather's good, feel happy. Interesting concept. And, and of course, one should feel happy in relation to Krishna and feel gratitude and appreciation for Krishna. And how do we get free from bad karma? I find it fascinating here that Nasingadeva is saying, and probably concentrates on this word, that we should get rid of bad karma by acting piously. Because I'm sure you all know that pious acts do not cancel bad acts. Even in material law, that's the case. Right? If I steal from money, money from you and I give that money to charity, they don't, that doesn't cancel each other out, even according to the law. The law, the law is not going to be impressed. And you're not going to be impressed either. Correct? If I steal some money from you and give it to a good cause, will you be impressed? Will, will that, will say, you'll say, well, that's, that's okay, it's fine. 
that you stole that from me because you gave it to a good cause. I don't think so. So that, that isn't the way that the law of karma works. So how do we get free from the results and actions? We talked about this in the beginning. Either you get free of them by suffering them, you know, by breaking your leg, by losing your money, by, you know, having somebody treat you poorly. Uh, or you get free of them by voluntarily doing some penance. We talked about that also. And that voluntary penance may look like some sort of pious activity. And again, this is true in the world. If I commit some crime or I commit some offense, I can get rid of that by either suffering through the reaction to it, or I can choose to take on some sort of voluntary suffering that may be a little different from the reaction I would get. And in fact, the Shastra strongly advises that we voluntarily do some penance before the bad reaction comes, which again makes sense in our normal human dealings. If someone steals money from me, I would much rather that they pay me back the money than that they go to jail. Right? I don't even particularly want them to go to jail. That's not my desire. I would actually rather that they rectify it with me. So this is also the way that Krishna feels. So this is the advice of Lord Nasingadev. He says that the way you'll get free of your good karma is that you will experience happiness when you are achieving the results of your good karma. And the way that you will get free of your bad karma is you will do uh, some sort of penance activity. You'll do some sort of pious activity. And in this way, one will become jivan mukta. Of course, the sadhana siddha not only does uh, some sort of these things to set an example, but also out of humility, like tate nukam pamsukshamikshamana. So the sadhana siddha is feeling, I need to rectify these things. It's not that just because... I'm on the liberated platform that I shouldn't take care of these things. Madhai was a good example of that. That even though Lord Chaitanya liberated him, he still, he went to Lord Nityananda and he said, I, I'm just not satisfied. I, I feel that I should do something to try to rectify. He said, but I was so drunk when I was offending people and hurting people, I, haven't, I don't know even who I offended. I, I don't even know what I did in, in my drunken state. And so Lord Nityananda said, well, build a nice bathing ghat by the Ganga and serve the devotees, and, and that will make up for it, which is the same kind of thing that Lord Nisingadev is saying here. So freedom is really possible. It, it really is possible, and it's really possible for us, and it's really possible for us now. It's not something unattainable, and it's not just something that we hope we'll achieve when we die, you know, that we're going to go on suffering in this life, and we, we hope when we die, somehow it'll be achieved. But we should be able to show to the world. I, I think we should be able to show something that's better than what the secular meditators, the totally non-religious meditators, and the voidists and the impersonalist meditators are, are presenting. I think we should be able to show a higher platform than that. But to be able to do that, we have to actually do it. And I think that that's what we all took up Krishna consciousness for. I think we all took up Krishna consciousness to enter a higher stage of consciousness. To experience a spiritual... Yes? Am I correct? To experience a spiritual reality. At least I didn't come to Krishna consciousness simply to get a new religion. I had no intention whatsoever of simply getting a new religion. I wasn't particularly satisfied with the religion of my parents, but I wasn't looking for a new religion at all, in, in any sense of the word. Yeah. So if we really want to achieve this, then we have to take up Krishna consciousness in a, in a very deep and, and meaningful way. So I am still within the time limit. Questions, comments, corrections, additions, subtractions? Yes, a new plan. Because on the individual and communal level, we uh, practice Krishna consciousness as religion. We are totally into beliefs and practices. We are I believe. I think so. Things into Indian folklore and way of dressing. I believe so. And therefore, we don't attract that many people because mostly nowadays people are interested in spirituality and not in religion. And that's actually completely opposite to what this person purpose says that. 
Yes. And find different ways to Yes. We just try to convey the message that we don't think how to attract them first. Well, also to attract them, we need to be achieving these things ourselves. I mean, the, the practices and the beliefs we have are very helpful. It's, it's very, very hard to think of Krishna if you're eating meat, fish, and eggs. That would be very difficult. Or you're having illicit sex, or you're taking intoxication. It would, be, it would be extremely difficult. Your mind will just jump all over the place. You won't be able to do it, really. So the particular, you know, waking up early in the morning, all these, if you look at all of our practices, they're, to, they're, they're either to create a situation where meditation on Krishna becomes much easier, or they're the natural expressions of thinking of Krishna. So people who naturally think of Krishna want to say his name all the time. Think of people who naturally think of Krishna want to worship his form all the time. So by doing these sort of things, we bring ourselves to the point of thinking of Krishna. And, and that's why we're doing them. If I don't believe that I'm separate from the mind and the body, it, it'll be much more difficult to get into the platform where I'm realizing that I'm different if I don't even believe it to begin with. It's possible, but it's, it's a lot harder. So therefore, therefore, we have these sets of beliefs and practices. But if we just focus on that, trying to convince people to believe what we believe and practice what we practice, and presenting it as another religion, I, most people in the world are not looking for a new religion. Most people are either satisfied with the religion of their family, or they don't really care particularly about religion at all. But people are looking for a way to come to a higher consciousness. They're very much looking for that. And especially since, we have to say frankly, most of the religions in the world are failing to achieve this for their members. Most of the religions of the world are not really that distinct from a nationality and, and a and, and, you know, you have a particular nationality, you have your festival days, and you have your... you understand? So the religions become like that. So they're not really achieving it. And then modern, technological, secular society certainly doesn't bring people to a higher consciousness. In fact, it, it makes achieving a higher consciousness almost impossible because it's dragging the mind into the modes of passion and ignorance. So people are they're desperate for it. And, and, and I'm convinced that we have absolutely the best form of meditation and transcendence on the planet. Yes? Um, sometimes the services we are performing may be too complex, that's not an effective work, or, you know, or just too much, and too, uh, too you know, not necessary. Well, it's nice. And in Manushiksha with verse 11, we'll be talking about stages of meditation. So tonight we're going to do a very quick uh, overview, but we should be doing text 11 on Thursday in depth. And that's one of the things that we'll discuss in the five stages of meditation that Prabhupada talks about in NOI text 8, uh, which Bhaktivinoda uh, recites in his commentary to Manushiksha text 11. That what, what you're looking for is the expanded stage of meditation, which is meditation um, stage 3, part 3. When your meditation leaves your, not leaves, but it, it expands out of your japa and gayatri and puja time into your whole life. So that, that doesn't generally happen unless one has done the prior stages. So one can assume, I mean, of course, there could be kripa at any time. 
one will assume that when one gets to that point that that question becomes irrelevant because then it's there. Until one gets to that point, then our meditation is going to be primarily in our meditation time with little bits and pieces the rest of the time. Of course, we should, we should try to connect with Krishna even outside of our concentrated meditation time. But in, you know, in his uh, Vishnu Chagavati Thakur, in his purport in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, when Rupa Goswami says, always think of Krishna and never forget him, he says, for the beginner, that means at least every day that we have a time of sadhana. Okay, in this time of sadhana, I'm going to do a very, a very in deep, concentrated meditation on Krishna during that time which as we become, as we progress in that, it starts to spill into the rest of the day. But there's also other ways to remember Krishna in the rest of the day, even when things are very hectic. And those sort of meditations are given very, uh, especially in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 15. And I'm just now reading this also in the 11th canto. I can't remember the chapter 14, maybe where Krishna says, you know, I am the light of the sun, I am the light in all luminous objects, I join with the air of life to digest the foodstuffs, I am the ability, I am the intelligence. So we can remember Krishna in that way, even when we're very, 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 very busy. And even when we're very, 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 very focused and absorbed in what we're doing. Krishna, you're my intelligence. Krishna, you're my ability. Krishna, you're the light in the room. Krishna, you're the heat in my body. I mean, that's something that we can become aware of in, in any situation. And if we practice like that, even throughout our daily life thinking in that way, then we'll also find that it will spark remembrance of some of Krishna's name and form and qualities and pastimes. You know, so those two things. So to have this very focused meditation time daily in our japa, our gayatri, our deity worship, our reading of the shastra. I mean, this is this is meant to be our time when it's when this is that should be the only thing that we're doing. That we're not splitting our attention as far as possible, and then throughout the day to meditate in that way, as, as Krishna advises, to see Krishna in the in the the things and the activity and the people with whom we're interacting in the in the world. And then it, it does start to spill over. Hmm? Yes, it starts to spill over. And it, it should be spilling over more and more. We should, we should be seeing that progression. Is that all right? But please don't have the mood that I can't meditate on Krishna while I'm in the world. And it's, that's... Then Krishna's lying when he says, Mamanusmaram Yujacha. I mean, he's telling Arjuna to meditate on him, smadanam. Mamanusmaram, smadanam. He's saying, smadanam, yujacha, while you're fighting a battle. I don't think I've ever done anything in my life that required such intense focus, and you're talking about being in a rush. You know, you know, if someone's trying to kill you and you're trying to kill them, I would imagine that your time frames are very small. <laughs> and I would imagine that your concentration on exactly what you're doing would have to be pretty much absolute. You know, Arjuna's concentration was so, what was the evidence of Arjuna having absolute concentration? To win Draupadi, yeah. And what else? Of that, of that fake bird, yeah. So his guru had put a toy bird up in a tree. And he asked all the students, you know, aim at the bird. And so they come with their arrow, they're aiming, and he says each of them, what do you see? And they'll say, oh, Guru Dave, I see your lotus feet. We're so funny, aren't we? What we think we're supposed to be doing. You know, I see your lotus feet and I see the tree and I see the bird. Okay, thank you. Sit down. Okay, next, pull your arrow. What do you see? Oh, Guru Dave, I see the tree and the sky and the bird. And... Okay, thank you. Sit down. And you know, each one of them. And then some of them, Guru Dave, I see the bird. <laughs> Very nice. Sit down. Arjuna comes. What do you see? Guru Dave, I see the eye of the bird. 
Do you see anything else? No, Gurudev, only the eye of the bird. And Krishna says to this person, Mam Anusmaram Yujicha, be in smaranam of me while you are fighting. Well, and I say, I can't think of Krishna while I'm cutting carrots or while I'm balancing the accounts. My guess is we're not that focused on what we're doing as Arjuna was on his fighting. That's my guess, first of all. My guess is also that we're not in something that's quite that time-sensitive as, as that. Yes, Prabhu. Yeah, just to back to another story you mentioned by Arjuna. Uh, <laughs> he was not able to protect the queens that Krishna was not around, mm-hmm. Krishna's presence physically. Yeah. He was so empowered. And I guess later he was also remembering Krishna Isn't that fascinating? You know, that that remembering Krishna doesn't necessarily empower us to do anything. It empowers us to do the job that Krishna wants us to do at that time. And Prabhupada notes that Arjuna lost that empowerment because he didn't need it anymore. He said at that point in his life, his job was just to go back home, back to Godhead. And he didn't need to have his military empowerment anymore for that purpose. But Arjuna was not happy in that. It was not like a surrender and state of mind, okay, Krishna, it's gone and I'm fine. No, he was super unhappy. That's a, that's a really interesting point. You know, there's also some other devotees that were very unhappy. I wonder if anybody's going to guess what I'm thinking of. And maybe you can think of something I'm not thinking of. That's always happy when people do that. What devotees were also very unhappy at their failure to do their service? What pure devotees? They had a service to do, they failed to do it, and they felt unhappy about it. Jatayu? Jatayu, definitely. Yeah. Maya Devi. Maya Devi. She's very unhappy that she hasn't been able to keep you in the material world? Is that the... <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. She's, she's very happy when we get out of her clutches. No, she, she likes her service. Um, oh, oh, wow. Haridas Sakura, when he couldn't finish his rounds because he was too sick. Anybody else that we can think of? Yes. Ooh, when when Naritam and Srinivas then they lost the books. Wow, yes. When their books were stolen. Vyasadev. Okay. I was thinking of two. I was thinking of the cowherd boys when they couldn't get food from the Brahmanas. And what's interesting about that is Krishna was personally present and it was Krishna's direct order. And the cowherd men, when they couldn't keep the cows from running down Govardhan Hill to see the calves who were actually Krishna, it said they felt bewildered and angry and frustrated, I think. There's three things. I know they were angry and they were bewildered. And you have to figure that probably these devotees feel that way because they're used to being successful. Success is sort of their, their default value. They're generally successful. As Sanjaya says, you know, wherever there's Krishna and the devotee, there's going to be victory. So the devotees get very accustomed to victory. And when they're not victorious, especially in their service, especially a service that's directly given to them by Krishna, as like with the cowherd boys, uh, then they do feel somewhat aggrieved. But I would say that there's varieties of ecstasy in Krishna's service. Joy is, you know, what we think of as joy is not the only one. There's other rasas, and there's rasas of, of grief. Karuna rasa is compassion, but it's also a rasa of grief. That I wasn't able to please Krishna in this way. Of course, Krishna was actually pleased in all of those situations. Krishna was actually pleased. Krishna didn't want Arjuna to protect his queens. He had another thing in mind. He didn't. He, he had another thing, and he wanted the cows to run down Govardhan Hill. You know, Ramachandra was very pleased with Jatayu and, and so forth. 
And I see that the, the devotees' angst like that is also a kind of ecstasy that's connecting them with Krishna. It's not the kind of angst we feel that, you know, wow, now I'm a failure. And my ego's wounded because I'm a failure. You know, I thought I was so great and now I'm not so great anymore. Oh no, poor me, poor me. I don't think it's like that. It's like, oh my Krishna, oh Krishna. And as soon as they think about Krishna with some emotion, immediately you're in ecstasy. It doesn't matter what the emotion is. I failed to satisfy my Krishna. I mean, this is the... Lord Chaitanya is, is in this mood a lot. Yes? I haven't pleased Krishna. I haven't loved Krishna. I haven't satisfied Krishna. What will I do? What will I do? It must be a really nice mood if God himself likes to experience it. So thank you very much.